liberal arts or general education requirements, the reason you took a theater course or one on public speaking, I often wonder how we could make these courses more meaningful and effective. Currently, you'd find yourself looking at a list of allowable courses and choosing them as you may an item from a dinner menu. Yes, I'll have the chicken piccata, please. Or, oh, that course on genocide and mass killing sure sounds interesting. I can't help but ask myself, is there a better way? We turn student choice into something arbitrary, as though they are choosing which kinds of trivia they find most appealing. You'd be hard-pressed to find any general education requirements that sketch out a pathway for meaningful connection between these broadly labeled liberal arts courses. I mean, let's start there. Liberal arts, what are they? As defined in Merriam-Webster, liberal arts are, quote, college or university studies, such as language, philosophy, literature, intended to provide chiefly general knowledge and to develop general intellectual capacity, such as reason and judgment, as opposed to professional or vocational skills. Nowhere is it written there that you cannot approach liberal arts thematically, do the skills-based work, but marry it with the aesthetic dimension, with the emotional appeal. You don't need to choose between reading something that will change your life and practicing critical thinking skills, which would be applicable throughout your life. In fact, if you could bring them together, all the better. And that isn't to say that some colleges and students are not already doing this. I'm sure they are, but I'd rather it be the norm than the outlier. Enter Cornerstone Integrated Liberal Arts, a program at Purdue University that attempts to revitalize the role of the humanities in general education. As it's written on their website, they aim, quote, to provide all students with the opportunity to broaden their understanding of the world and themselves while strengthening the skills to read closely, write clearly, speak with confidence, and to engage with differing viewpoints and perspectives through general education courses. The initiative emphasizes gateway courses aimed at incoming students and is anchored in transformative texts, the greatest that has been thought, said, and written across humanity. I sat down with Dr. Melinda Zook, the director of Cornerstone, to find out why this program started, how it works, who carries it out, and how it could serve as a model for other colleges and universities across the country. I'm Thomas Thompson, and while this show is featuring increasingly less history, at least I sat down with a historian today. In this episode of Dirty History, I'm sitting down with Dr. Melinda Zook of Purdue University. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. So not only do you have a distinguished career as a historian with numerous well-received books, articles, and book chapters published since the early 90s, you also have been up to some very interesting projects as, as an educator, specifically with Cornerstone Integrated Liberal Arts, and, and that's what I would really like to focus on for this episode. So in preparing to sit down and, and have this conversation with you, one of the articles I saw about Cornerstone was in Inside Higher Ed. And they noted that as of 2015, and I'm quoting here, fewer than 10% of recent Purdue graduates had taken a single course in literature, 
and only 7% had taken a course in American history. As a professor of history, did you find those figures alarming? Well, ab absolutely. Um, and those figures are part of the rationale behind the creation of Cornerstone. Students at Purdue were graduating without a single course in American history, never mind having an appreciation for the rest of the world, uh, which is so important today with this global economy that we live in. And so this is obviously very disturbing. And it was actually uh, President Mitch Daniels, president of Purdue, uh, who pointed this out. So you realize then that there's this there's this lack of liberal arts education among many Purdue students. What do you think many students are missing by not taking a course in literature or history? What do you see as the value of those courses? Well, of course, it's hard to exaggerate uh, the value of the humanistic um, inquiry that comes from courses in literature and philosophy and languages and history. Uh, those courses broaden and deepen our understanding of our world, um, but also they allow us to see ourselves anew, uh, to understand our place in this extremely complex world. Uh, and those courses, of course, also impart uh, skills. Uh, skills that every uh, employee certainly needs, engineers, doctors, accountants, um, in order to articulate their vision, articulate their ideas, to communicate, uh, to work in teams, all of the things that one needs in our economy today. And coursework in the liberal arts teaches students how to think critically and write with precision uh, and speak with eloquence. I think we should take a couple of steps back then. So we were talking about Cornerstone Integrated Liberal Arts. Uh, what exactly is that? I think once we establish what this program is, then we can discuss its formation okay. and we can discuss the problem that it's trying to solve. I, I didn't really lay the groundwork here. So what then is Cornerstone Integrated Liberal Arts? What was this program? Well, you did lay the groundwork. I mean, you, you began by talking about uh, the decline uh, of, of the number of students taking liberal arts courses and, and social uh, science courses as well. It was broadly uh, a decline uh, within all of the liberal arts. So that includes political science, anthropology, sociology, uh, along with the traditional humanities, English, philosophy, uh, literature, language. This was a nationwide decline. And it began uh, after the recession of 2008. So what we began to see were liberal arts colleges collapsing. Um, that happened here in Indiana. There's one close to us, uh, St. Joseph's and Rensselaer. Just it folded. And this was nationwide. We saw other larger institutions uh, closing down, shuttering uh, departments in, in the humanities. Now. At Purdue, um, this is a, a very large public institution, and of course we were strong enough that we never needed to take those kinds of drastic measures, but the College of Liberal Arts at Purdue was hit particularly hard. And let me give you, uh, there, I can, the statistics are all there, but let me give you a more personal view of it. I normally teach the survey in medieval history, and um, I could get between 200 and 300 students easy. No problem. But along comes the recession, and I walk into uh, you know the first day on the fall semester in 2015, and it's dropped from the normal 200 to 300 students to 70. Ooh. And this is shocking. But more so, 
um, if you taught something like the history of England, which you would normally get 45 students, and suddenly you've got 10. Many of my colleagues had their classes canceled. Uh, they had such low enrollment or absolutely no enrollment. So it's dispiriting. Um, it's, you, you really worry about your profession and your future. And of course, you worry about the students as well, because are they getting a holistic education if they never have a single class um, in American history or uh, in constitutional uh, history or in, say, they never read Homer or, or Shakespeare, right, or Plato, mm -hmm. and, and yet they graduate, right? So um, all of this is the foreground for, for Cornerstone. And now uh, I can tell you what that program does. It, it, it seeks to remedy some of these issues. In short, Cornerstone is a 15-hour certificate program, but it's not a, a little niche or boutique program. It's available to any student entering Purdue. And it begins with a new first-year sequence, transformative texts one and two, uh, that fulfills students' communication requirements. Normally, they might take something like uh, English Comp and Introduction to Speech. But through Cornerstone, they can take that those two courses, Transformative Text 1 and 2, with a full-time faculty member. Could be myself, a historian, could be a philosopher, could be somebody in literature or languages. And we're not only teaching these communication skills, but we're doing it through great texts, foundational texts, uh, whatever you want to call them, from Plato on up to Toni Morrison. So that's the first year sequence, and that's mm -hmm. six credit hours. And then um, if they take three more courses in the liberal arts in one of our five themes of Cornerstone, they get the certificate. The five themes of Cornerstone are science and technology, environment and sustainability, management and organizations, medicine and healthcare, and justice and conflict resolution. So. Under each of those themes, there is a whole menu of courses that are all liberal arts courses, and they all, uh, or most of them, fulfill general gen ed requirements that the student would have to take anyway. But instead of the student sort of coming in and oh, they have to fulfill these requirements and they sort of pick them willy-nilly, cafeteria mm -hmm. style, they can pick them all in one of those themes and get an, another competency. So say you're in environmental engineering, um, you do transformative text one and two, you've got this great solid background in the liberal arts and you've, your skills have been honed. And then you can take courses in, say, global green politics and uh, learn about uh, environment from a sort of humanist or social science perspective. That really broadens their worldview. Um, and at the end, they get a certificate, it goes on their transcripts, and uh, we're trying to tell employers that with this Cornerstone certificate, these students have accomplished something extra, something special. They have had 15 hours of liberal arts coursework that has really honed their reading, writing, and presenting skills. And that's what we're trying to do. And, you know, uh, at the end of the day, it's like we want to build better boilermakers, right? Better, better Purdue students that, that uh, can set the world on fire. That not literally, but it seems it seems useful. I mean, especially as someone who just went through undergrad. I mean, my degree was in education, but then I was still taking a, a theater course. Don't get me wrong. I love Chekhov, but I could have 
you know, benefited from the the justice and conflict resolution or something like that. You know, I could have taken those themes and it would have, you're right, add another dimension to to what I was doing. You mentioned, though, that you noticed these declining numbers in liberal arts. They happen around the recession. Why do you think that might have been? Just STEM seem more valuable, leads to better careers or? Well, there's there's no doubt that um, it was sort of economic angst that uh, students, uh, maybe under some pressure from their parents as well, uh, want a career-tailored major. So it could be forestry, right, or pharmacy, but it's more often than not something like engineering or computer science. And they are uh, drifting, uh, I mean, not just drifting, uh, it's more like a flood uh, towards uh, the STEM disciplines. and. It's understandable. You're going to pay a lot of money uh, for those four years of college. Um, and of course, they want to return. But the problem was, I think, that, okay, uh, you're getting an engineering degree, but you are also a human. And you need uh, to be fully human. And you need all of those aspects of your character, of, of yourself, of, of your abilities to be brought out. And um, that's what uh, the general education requirements are. Cornerstone is just sort of amplifying those and making it easier mm -hmm. for students to complete uh, their gen ed requirements. And, and it kind of makes it all feel like there was some central purpose to it, which which I definitely would appreciate, you know, because I, like I said, I took these gen ed requirements. They're very disparate. But I, by the time I graduated, I felt like most of my learning, aside from the technical courses for education, came from just me going in the stacks myself and reading books, you know, which if I had someone guiding me, you know, and yeah. that, that would be, that would have been much appreciated. So we discussed the intent in creating Cornerstone. What, what was the mark that you and your colleagues set for yourself when you were designing this? I mean, what did success look like to you? What were you hoping to say when this program rolls out, mm -hmm. this is what success would look like? Well, I think we've had more success than we ever thought we would have. I can easily say that as you you haven't mentioned it yet, but we just had this huge uh, NEH grant, National Endowment for the Humanities. Uh, went to the Teagle Foundation to uh, replicate Cornerstone and other colleges and institutions throughout the country. So that kind of success, of course, at the very beginning, we never even dreamed of. What we, and it was myself and seven or seven other faculty members in, in the liberal arts, were simply dreaming of was a better first year sequence for incoming Purdue students in which uh, they would be taught instead of by graduate students or by um, adjunct faculty or limited term lectures, they would be taught by full-time faculty, uh, tenured faculty for the most part like myself, and really given a robust feeling for what are the liberal arts and how can you do that without reading you know, Homer, Dante, or whoever you should choose, right? It could be the speeches of Frederick Douglass. It could be the Federalist Papers. Um, and of course, the program is much larger. We started uh, with just a few of us teaching and we had like 100 students. And uh, this fall we have over 2,000 students in uh, the Transformative Tech sequence and about 60 faculty. So it just keeps growing. I guess that's- So it hasn't taken its final form then. It's still, no, it's still growing. No. I, and I hope it. I hope we never. I hope it never takes its final form. Can I say that? Because yeah. um, what's the most exciting part about uh, Cornerstone for me is developing it, 
and um, working more with other units on campus. So we have worked uh, a lot with Purdue Polytechnic. That's our uh, College of Technology. We've worked a lot with engineering, but we also worked with units like Purdue Theater and the galleries and um, making that first year experience, not only about reading and writing and, and, and thinking of, uh, and, and talking and discussing great ideas, but about going to plays or films or operas or, or before COVID, museums, all those things, making those available so they get a real uh, liberal arts experience. So for example, we were talking about Frankenstein. And the reason I started investigating uh, the film history of Frankenstein was we brought a theatrical show of Frankenstein to Purdue. Uh, we got free copies of the book uh, for every, every Cornerstone student. Um, we had a film fest with it. And we did all of these interesting things. So the students had such a rounded experience. We had a, a short fiction contest. We did it recently again with the Odyssey. We brought a theatrical production. We brought, gave them free books. Uh, there's a new uh, translation of the Odyssey by a, a woman, the first time a woman has translated it. And 900 students read the Odyssey, saw the theatrical production. Now that's a win. Yeah. Right? <laughs> it's no, just, definitely. It, 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 um, it was so satisfying. And, you know, these are students, most of them are in engineering and computer science and uh, you know things like construction management and aviation technology and normally they they wouldn't do this they wouldn't yeah. have a chance um, but we're making all those things uh, possible for them I mean that's the reason I had you on the show I'm all about increasing access to various kinds of information or in this case the the, the print media because I feel like increasingly we're not as exposed to it and by the way I, t I love that you said that you hope it never reaches its final form. It reminded me of this Neil Postman quote. He said that when an organization, well, he said society, I'm paraphrasing, of course, when an organization becomes so concerned with uh, precedent and tradition, it becomes so focused on how things are done that it doesn't really care whether things are actually done. And I, I love that it's this constant reevaluation and improvement and expansion that's refreshing. And exciting. Yes, definitely. Yeah, it has to be exciting. Yeah, that's what I, what I like about it. If, if it ever comes to a point uh, where I feel a little like, okay, we're done, I'm out of here. <laughs> yeah. Do it till it's not fun. That's yeah, my motto with the podcast. Right. <laughs> so you, uh, you mentioned that you, you teach a course, Transformative Text, Critical Thinking and Communication. That's the, that's the cornerstone course, right? Yes, that's um, the first half of the sequence. That one uh, stresses uh, written communication and research skills. And the second half uh, stresses um, oral communication. So in the first half, we do texts from antiquity up to about, uh, well, however you want to define modernity, maybe 1500, maybe 1800. It depends on, on, on your particular viewpoint. Um, and the second half does modern and late modern texts. I teach the first half because my specialty is early modern British history. And I usually start with something like Dante, and we do maybe the Inferno, which students love the best. And uh, it has all these wonderful themes about teacher and student, Virgil and Dante, and uh, Dante's midlife crisis, and, and uh, you know, learning through uh, his long trek through these various circles. And you would think, okay, students aren't going to like that. They love it. They love the Inferno. And we read it out loud. We read a lot of it out loud. 
and that's um, a lot of fun. And then we we break down break it down and discuss it. And then we go to something like uh, Sir Thomas More's Utopia, which they like better than I do, to be honest. Uh, <laughs> and you know, I'll do an exercise like, okay, here's his idea of a utopia. How would you construct a utopia? The engineers like that one. Yeah. Uh, and uh, talk about uh, what what things that you know. How would you handle healthcare and full employment and and um, uh, crime and all these things. And uh, then we usually do the Tempest, uh, which brings up colonialism, which is sort of interesting, and Afrobenz Orinoco, which is the first uh, novel to address slavery. Maybe we'll do Locke's second treatise uh, with all of the, the, the rights and responsibilities that he discusses. And I usually end with Voltaire's Candide, which is a satire, and it's very, very funny, and they like it. I'm assuming then transformative text is that is that a loose term does that differ from professor yeah. to professor they each choose their own text how much freedom do you have in choosing uh, the text that you use i mean okay that's an excellent question so what we 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 wanted some consistency across the, the sections so if you have all your liberal arts faculty involved so that means i have anthropologists teaching this and i have political scientists teaching this and i have italian professors teaching this the one thing that we all have in common, of course, are foundational texts, right? But of course, there's a lot of different uh, expertise. So um, what we did is we put together a list of a little bit over 200 titles of authors we thought wrote transformative texts. Uh, so um, going up from, you know, uh, Confucius and Plato all the way up to bell hooks. And... Um, what we say is 50% of your list should come from that list. 50% of the acquired text should come okay, from that yeah. list. And that gives them plenty of leeway, right? Yeah. It seems rather obvious already that this is this is useful. Targeting communication skills and thoroughly discussing foundational texts lend themselves to a curriculum built on critical thinking. How do you illustrate this to people? How do you build interest in it? Well, it depends on my audience. Yeah. The hardest audience are students. I will be, uh, I'll admit that. Because if you come at them with, this is going to build your communication skills, they will turn you off within 10 seconds. First of all, they think they have them anyway, <laughs> right? <laughs> uh, or they don't need them, or yeah. you know, they're just not interested. But if you start talking about, this will open your eyes. This will help you see something um, yourself included differently. That I think does resonate uh, with students, and you know, you just start talking about how absolutely transformative some of these texts were for you. We read um, Herman Hesse's Siddhartha. I don't know if did you ever read it in college? It's really truly wonderful. I didn't read it in college, but I read it this summer. Okay, you read it. Oh, oh. Right here. Yep. There, and that's actually the copy I have. Oh. The old copy. I uh, bought it at a. I saw it at a Goodwill, and I okay. said I have to have it. Oh well, you were very. That's very smart on your part because that is a definitely a transformative text. Oh, for sure. Um, my students read it, and uh, one of them said, "Well, I just bought you know this for my whole family." Another one forced her roommate to read it, and why? Because you know it it makes you see the world in a way you hadn't seen it before mm -hmm. or even more importantly yourself yeah yourself the yeah. n-word that's right <laughs> sure i mean there 
there's always that one text. I mean, there's only one that I really remember that had that effect on me that I had to read in school, which was uh, Slaughterhouse Five, Kurt Vonnegut. Oh yeah. The first yeah. time I read it, I thought it was brilliant satire, and then the second time I read it, I looked deeper into, you know, Billy Pilgrim, and then I was thinking about PTSD and whatnot. And it's just, it's the gift that keeps on giving. You know, you read it and you get something new out of it every time. And I'm excited to go back and, and read this this one again. Um, I'll give it, a, I'll give it a couple years, see the, well, my frame of mind change, and then revisit it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there are some books that work really well when you're 20, and I would say Sir Arthur is 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 that book. Um, it, uh, I think it speaks to young people really well. I think, um, some of the work of, um, JD, uh, Salinger. Oh, I was just about to cite that one. I <laughs> thought Catcher in the Rye was so impactful when I was 17, 18. I read yeah. it. I went to read it again and I just, it, it didn't do it for me. I'm like, what yeah. did I get out of this the first time? You know? Right. Right. I mean, it's, 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 uh, the, the age that you're sort of in. And I try to hit that age. I remember what it was like to be in college. Um, and, you know, your early 20s are so confusing anyway um, that you need all the help and all the wisdom mm -hmm. uh, that, that, you, that you can get. And these, that's what these books have. And um, I think that's what the students are finding. So that's usually the tack I take with students. Yeah. It's not what I would say to parents. It's not what I would say to employers. Um, but it's, it's, um, that, that resonates with young people. So I think that leads right into my next question. In much of the ancillary material around Cornerstone, I see this emphasis on how Cornerstone can and should serve as a model of how to do liberal arts in higher ed. Is the curriculum that Cornerstone employs really that alien to what you see on most universities? Is there a key piece that Cornerstone has which most general education requirements lack or miss? I think many universities gave up on teaching core texts or foundational texts or transformative texts. Transformative text is actually my term. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that uh, they went to sort of, okay, we're going to have a skills-based uh, composition course and uh, you're going to learn how to write a paragraph and uh, a five-paragraph essay. Um, and we're going to have a skills-based communication course, and you're going to learn how to give a speech on how to make microwave popcorn. And um, my feeling was this is a missed opportunity to get them to, to write about and talk about works that can change their lives uh, and make them more well-rounded adults. Mm -hmm. um, but it's a heavy lift for a lot of universities to put in transformative text. I mean, the fact that I'm using our own faculty, every time I teach transformative text, I'm teaching one less history course. So there, there, there's a price, mm -hmm. but it's worth it because I'm also drawing in students to history, right? They teach transformative text with me. They love it. And they ask me, what are you teaching next semester? Aha, I'm teaching history of England. Come on in, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and the same for everybody who's teaching it. It's still the same idea that you attract, um, they get to know you, they, they, they get to appreciate you, but they would never have taken you otherwise, right? Yeah. Uh, unless you're teaching that sort of first year sequence. And then they take the next class with you. Um, and there's this whole idea that sometimes students major by professor, they fall in love with this professor in their introductory, in an introductory course, and they continue to take uh, courses with that professor or that professor's specialization. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and, you know, the liberal arts are so misnamed. Nobody knows what they are. Right. An 18 year old. How are they supposed to know what the liberal 
arts are. Well, that's why we have transformative texts to sort of show you that it's about uh, all, all these great uh, and inspirational, uh, not just books, but also plays and poetry and theater and film and um, all the ways that you can look at art. So it's it's a marrying of the skills-based curriculum that has really been rolling over many college campuses and really many uh, secondary schools as well, and with the transformative texts, with that, I don't want to say emotional appeal, but maybe that is the term, that the, the ability of a book to, you pick it up and it can change your life. I, I think you're right. Um, but uh, to be honest, the only thing that really stirs people is usually emotional. I mean, mm-hmm. rational arguments <laughs> rarely... Yeah, no, I very well. <laughs> rational arguments are well and good until someone pulls out an emotional appeal, and then you can't okay. stand up to it. But let me let me go back to your original question. It is a heavy lift for mm-hmm. other colleges and universities. Purdue has done. However, um, I think that they are all looking for ways of drawing more students into the humanities and social sciences, and that's why they're very attracted to Cornerstone. So, for example. Um, the Teagle Foundation, which got this huge grant from the NEH to replicate Cornerstone, uh, they just had a webinar, and um, over 200 colleges and universities signed up. They're, they definitely want to do something mm-hmm. like Cornerstone that will reinvigorate uh, the liberal arts. I, I understand that, because th- that thematic approach to doing the general education requirements just seems to gel much better with student needs and different majors and different uh, interests. So you were talking about how it is a heavy lift because you teaching a transformative text course is one less history course you're teaching. And I'd like to kind of pivot to that other aspect of your professional (laughs) life. I mean, this is a history podcast and you're a distinguished historian. It would be negligent of me not to talk about your work a little more broadly. So your most recent book was a collection you co-edited with Hilda Smith titled Generations of Women Historians Within and Beyond the Academy. I emphasize the beyond part as you wrote about C.V. Wedgwood, who never held an academic position, correct? That's true. C.V. Wedgwood, she was so prolific, particularly sort of mid-20th century. But when we talk about the 17th century and we look at the historians of the mid-17th century, we always talk about Lawrence Stone or Christopher Hill. Rarely mentioned C.V. Wedgwood, but she was the, uh, the, the historian many people were reading. But she wrote these sort of grand narrative works that have sort of fell out of favor, particularly after the 1960s and 70s. And history becomes increasingly analytical. And the grand narrative sort of, uh, especially she also did a lot of biography. Yeah, um, that uh, also sort of gave way. Um, so she isn't well read now. Most of her books have been made uh, audiobooks, and I think that this tells us, particularly the her most critically acclaimed book, the thirty on the Thirty Years' War, mm-hmm. uh, that people are listening, yeah. that people are buying it for their car when they're going on a long drive, and she had this beautiful way of telling stories, which I think you know history is. Uh, a lot of different stories, uh, and she she was able to do that. I'm I feel a little bad because no one is reading her now, or fewer people are reading her now. But they're listening. They 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 are listening. Uh, so what what is that? I want I want to dive into that a little bit. What do you think that 
means? I mean, does that mean she's not being used academically, of course, or is just more or less people are doing it out of enjoyment? I think people are doing it out of enjoyment. I think people want to hear the story. Like she has a very famous uh, biography of William the Silent. And um, she has a three a trilogy on the Civil War. And people are interested in this stuff. And they want the story. They don't want to know about, <laughs> you know, um, fishing rights and uh, Lancashire. They want to know about, uh, <laughs> in other words, they don't want to want the, the little pieces uh, of the puzzle that historians yeah. often focus on. They want to know the grand narrative. And she she is able to do that. So she she is popular in that sense. Um, I wouldn't assign her. Yeah. And I'll tell you why. Uh, first of all, her books are too big. And, and secondly, because we usually do uh, delve into sort of what they're calling micro-histories when I teach uh, upper-level Tudor Stewart history or uh, graduate courses. I, I will assign usually uh, micro-histories of, mm -hmm. say, a Puritan artisan uh, right before the Civil War. That, that's better for training historians. In print, I have a collection of essays on urban history, but on my Audible account, I listen to Will Durant. I'm okay. not going to read Durant, but <laughs> so it's kind of the the similar deal. So, what do you see then as the place of history written by individuals outside of the academy? Those who are writing things that might be more useful to enjoy. Well, of course, I, I'm sure you know this. Biography is still huge mm -hmm. among the general population. So, you take someone like Ron Chernoff, right? Uh, they write, uh, you know, Hamilton. And uh, it's an immediate bestseller. So the, the general public still likes that sort of often great man uh, history. That doesn't happen as much within the academy. And certainly, you know, you take the, the, the historian starting out, writing the dissertation. Very, I, very, I don't think I even allow a graduate student to do biography, to be honest. Uh, I, I, that would... That probably would not happen. You would start out, you know, as I did. Um, I started out as a strictly political historian, uh, and I was writing on the lead up to the Glorious Revolution. That would be, you know, the, the perfect dissertation becomes a book, but it's all scholarly. I don't think uh, beyond uh, the academy, many people have read my first book. One of the first things I was told when I when I was taking a history course is that biography is not history. <laughs> they're like, just get, just unseparate the two. And I, I think the reason I was told that is because by and large, the public conception of history is usually biography. And that's not necessarily the history that professionals are doing. Or do you disagree with that point? I don't know. I'm not prejudiced against biography by any matter of means, um, or even popular history. I guess sometimes I'm even a little bit more prejudiced against academic history <laughs> for not making it more user friendly, uh, you know, uh, and not reaching a larger audience. Mm -hmm. I mean, I myself with the second book uh, went with a trade press because I was trying to reach a larger audience because I, I wanted more people to be interested in the 17th century. That's a common feeling that I've largely had. I'm like, what, what, what's the point of writing this if you're going to write it in a way that's going to bar the general public from being interested in it you know yeah yeah well there's two things i mean obviously young historians need to go through the ranks they need to get yeah. promotion and they're going to get promotion on scholarly articles mm -hmm. in reviewed journals and uh with the university press 
Yeah. Right. So they're they're following sort of the rules of the profession. It's after you uh, jump through those hurdles that you can be a little more creative. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. So jump through the hoops, and then you can. It's like the um, oh, I forget who it was, famous singer, and he was like, "I do five for them and one for me." That's yeah. right. <laughs> so I, I think I think a common misunderstanding that many people have is in that division between you know what's scholarly history, what's popular history, and again, it seems even discussed by some past guests I've had on the show as something that hierarchical the one form of writing history is better than another is, is that is that a flawed way of looking at the way people oh, write yeah. i mean i think that so long as you you know are uh, as objective as uh, humanly possible and your sources are sound i think that uh, actually historians would do well to write in a more uh, less jargon filled and uh, meaningful uh, way to uh, both uh, students uh, and the general public. And I tried to follow that uh, mm-hmm. road uh, as I age, to be honest, uh, and I want to reach a larger audience. Yeah. I know we've alluded to this, but where, where does Wedgwood fall then? Okay. This? Well, she was, I think that she herself was somewhat hurt. I know she was, um, having read her diaries, by the way she was treated by male academics in particular uh, in the 1950s and 60s as though uh, her history was second rate. And part of it was because she was a woman and part of it was because she did not have an academic position. She, I guess, was uh, sometimes overlooked by the academy, but uh, her books always went into paper, uh, to this day, uh, are more read by the general public. Well, there you have it. Okay. I, mean, I think that's, that's as good a place as any. Thank you so much for coming on. Uh, this is my pleasure, absolutely. I enjoyed this conversation a lot. Yeah, this was a lot of fun. Thanks again. Well, thank you. There you have it, folks. That was my conversation with Dr. Melinda Zook about Cornerstone Integrated Liberal Arts. This has been Dirty History. You know where to find us. I mean, you're listening to the show right now, but you could find us on Instagram, on Facebook, on SoundCloud, on iTunes. Although I will be honest, I have not been as active on the social media accounts as of late. That might change. It might not. No promises. But uh, if it does you'll want to have subscribed anyway. So it's a win-win. Either you don't get bothered with posts or I start posting interesting things. You win either way. My introductions and questions, they are tediously edited by Malia Schiminger and Dirty History's cover art and theme music is by Woodrow Cower. I have no idea what I would do without these two people carrying the show along. Their backs must hurt, really, from, from carrying this show because... You know me, I screw things up all the time. So, um, hey, this is Dirty History. I'm your host, Thomas Thompson, and I'll talk to you soon.